Welcome to the TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about what they find interesting in tech each week. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh69. We have three out of four hosts this week. I'm Leo Notenboom, the chief question answerer out at askleo.com. I'm also the publisher of a couple of non-tech sites, notallnewsisbad.com, a daily antidote for, well, basically everything else these days, and heroicstories.org, twice-weekly stories of people just being good people. I am Kevin Sabitz, creator of faxzero.com, a site that uh, just surpassed 19 million faxes sent. Wow. Wow. I know. Impressive. I know. And uh, also, freeprintable.net, which uh, has uh, stuff you can print out. Cool. I, I'm I should Gary. a marketing team for, for better this time. Yeah. <laughs> stuff you can print. I don't know. I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer at macmost.com, and I also make uh, mobile apps and do WordPress stuff and things like that. And I also read lots of science fiction. You know, every week we've got a, like, a thing like, what have we been up to this week? <laughs> and we all try to fill it with whatever we've been doing. And I haven't been doing too much different. Uh, so, you know, but I did just finish a series that took me months to read. Um, it's one of those epic sci-fi series uh, things. Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, really. I know. It was, <laughs> it was, but uh, but my, the, the series I just finished is actually called, well, technically it's called Remembrance of Earth's Past. But nobody in the United States calls it that. Everybody in the United States calls it the three-body problem series because the first book is called The Three-Body Problem. And the author is, uh, let's see if I get the name, uh, Leo, Liu Tuxin. Tuxin? Yeah, I think my, my pronunciation of anything other than English names is horrible. is embarrassing, too. Uh, anyway, uh, it's a fantastic uh, three-book series, um, science fiction, and it was originally written and released in Chinese. It's a Chinese author and was translated in the last several years to English and promptly won. One of the books won a Hugo Award, I think, uh, and uh, nominated for Nebula Awards and things like that and bestsellers and all. And uh, just epic science fiction series. It reminded me of the Foundation series in its scope, um, starting, really it started the 1950s and then goes far into the future. Um, it has all sorts of cool tech in it. I love it when sci-fi books have more than just one piece of tech. Like if it's a sci-fi book about going faster than the speed of light or something, that's like the only thing in it. But a series like this has tons of stuff from, you know, hibernation technology to, you know, uh, screens that appear on walls to uh, spaceship design to what what space warfare would really be like um, to multiple dimensions and uh, communications technology and all sorts of things. It's all over the place. It reminds me a lot of uh, Neil Stevenson books in that he also always like picks a bunch of really cool pieces of futuristic technology and want, you know, puts them into the story. This book's got tons of that. So, so you, how long did you say it took you to read it? Ah, uh, several months. I mean, it was. I, I actually just that much. I mean, are the books much. simply that big? I think the first book's about four hundred pages, and the other two were five hundred and so. Um, and they're just very dense in terms of story, lots of characters, and to make things interesting for people that do not speak Mandarin, uh, it, it's very centered on. Uh, China, although it's international in scope. So there are, there are characters from every, you know, all sorts of countries from Europe, from the United States, et cetera. But um, the, the main characters are usually from China and there are Chinese names that do slow you down a bit uh, when all you know is English. And, um, and you learn a lot of interesting things um, and, you know, some differences in, I guess, fiction and Chinese science fiction, but also be amazed at the similarities, um, how it really just reads as a normal novel. But, you know, you, sometimes we, you know, we get caught up in the whole idea that, oh, something's going on in the future and it's important. And of course, the, the United States would be the, the country leading the way and it would be the president of the United States dealing with things and the U.S. government and the CIA and the Air Force and all of that. And, uh, and, you know, so it was interesting to read a book where 
the U.S. wasn't always at the center of things. It's interesting. There was a, um, I have a vague memory of a movie released not that long ago um, that was actually like a big blockbuster sci-fi movie in China. I was about to bring that up. And do you know if it was, was it dubbed? I, you're talking about The Wandering Earth? I don't know what it was called. I just, I mean, I, I, this, this sounds horrible, but my suspicion is there probably is only one right now that fits, the, fits what we just described. So, yeah, this has been make, kind of making the rounds. I keep seeing it mentioned. Uh, I was going to say, you know, speaking while we're talking about Chinese sci-fi, uh, this movie is on Netflix now. Um, it's called The Wandering Earth, and it's a Chinese science fiction film, um, which was, I guess, released earlier this year in China in February in this year, uh, $50 million budget and the box office, it made $700 million. Um, and it's now on Netflix. And by all accounts, well, by all accounts of the American reviewers, I've seen the movie is terrible. That's what I was leading up to. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. I understand that it didn't turn out so good. <laughs> well, I guess not, but I mean, but you have to wonder if that's if that's cultural. In other words, do the mm-hmm. Chinese believe it's a you know? If for them, is it a really really good movie? Right. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, I just I don't know. It's hey, interesting. I want to see it, and it's on Netflix, so you know, no cost to me except yeah. for a couple hours of time. I right, guess. Right. But yeah, and I just I just took a quick look, uh, googled it real quick while you were talking, and yes, this is the one I'm talking about, just because I recognize the uh, the image that's associated with it. So yeah. Well, I have noticed an effect. Um, with Netflix and reviews that is similar to the effect you get with apps when apps are free in, in app stores um, is that there's a huge negative bias towards the rating of like free apps because people are like, Oh, this is free. I'll download it. Oh no, this isn't what I wanted. And then they'll review it for like one star or something mm-hmm. um, because it didn't cost them. They didn't have to invest anything in it. They didn't have to think, well, do I really want this before they purchased it? Um, and it, Netflix has a similar thing because you know, after you pay the monthly subscription, you tend to think of everything as free. Um, maybe you're just getting Netflix for one or two shows, really, and everything else is just a bonus. Mm-hmm. So then you go to you know, Netflix has these originals, and they release these originals, and people watch them and give them these horrible reviews. And sometimes I read the reviews, and I'm like, you would never have – if you had to pay to go see this or pay to rent it, you would never have done so. So why are you reviewing it now? This clearly is not for you. Right. You just did it because it was free and you saw an ad and you, and you were too lazy to look for something else to watch. You watched it and you decided to review it. <laughs> um, so I've seen a bunch of things on Netflix that I thought were you know, decent. Nothing like, oh, wow, this is amazing. But like worth three stars or something like that. And some of the reviews then I've read afterwards have been horrible from people that should not have been watching it in the first place. Sure. Right, right. For a while, for about for, for a year, um, my wife and I had uh, Movie Pass, which I think I talked a long mm-hmm. time ago right, yeah. on this. And we, don't, we no longer have Movie Pass because they, they really jumped the shark and, and I do, cannot recommend it. But for a while, I mean, for originally you could see a movie a day and then they changed it to three movies a week. And then it was three movies a week, except for you had to sign in first and get there okay and they would never say there were any movies available that day so it just it got progressively worse but during that time while it was failing um we saw a lot of movies and we absolutely saw things that we wouldn't have gone to otherwise and certainly wouldn't have paid for it might you know, some mm-hmm. stuff i like maybe i'll watch this on an airplane you know for an eight hour flight if i have nothing else to do um and we saw a lot of crap and uh <laughs> Yeah, but you know, it was it was it was quote unquote free, except for the the subscription fee and our time, and it was fine. But you you kind of kind of have to take that that sort of um, philosophy if you're just watching a movie on Netflix that you chose on a whim. You know, if you hate it, why even bother going back and giving it a a, a one star review? If it wasn't for you, then give up. I see it all the time with apps and, and yeah. with free apps. It is just something, it's something that plagues the app store. If it's a free app, mm. it is just uh, it's a big issue. Uh, I, uh, tangential, I, I recently, uh, when I was in New York, I went and I saw an off-Broadway play I, I, um, that I had not intended to see. It was I had an open kind of slot, and I went and saw this show. Um, and I'm not going to say the name of it. It was terrible, though. <laughs> it was that bad. Huh? It was real bad. Um, 
and I was just like walking, you know, back from the theater, just like thinking about like what what was wrong with this play and and why I didn't like it, and just trying to put my finger on it. And I, I went back to uh, to the room and I started googling reviews of this play, which I did not do beforehand because I like when I see a show, I like to go in knowing nothing, unless I know the better. I want to be surprised. Um, I honestly enjoyed reading the negative reviews more than the, the show itself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a, a, a well-written bad review is just can be a piece of art, you know. And I found four or five that were far superior to this this uh, the show that I had seen. So the show is closed now. So so it, it inspired yeah, art. It did I think so? Right. So we're going on with you, Kevin. Oh. Um, yeah, I don't have too much techie uh, this week. Um, however, I have started uh, to port Renderific, which is my scale- scalable vector graphic viewer for the Atari computer. I've started to see if I can port that to the Apple II. Trying to do that in advance of Kansas Fest, uh, which is uh, the Apple II conference that I go to every summer, and I want to see if I can give a talk about about this this software. So. Uh, it was, I don't know, kind of a miracle that I managed to make it work, uh, show SVG files on the Atari, and now I'm trying to double down on that and port it to uh, to the Apple. Um, Remind so, me what it's written in? Uh, it's in BASIC. Okay. Yeah. Um, not the pure built-in BASIC, but on the Atari, I used a uh, an upgraded version of BASIC called TurboBASIC XL. But yeah, basically, I mean, it's just, it's BASIC, and they added some right. better looping features and, and things like that. Um, so my start on the Apple... The 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 uh, standard Apple II basic is called AppleSoft, and it's not very good. Um, so I started by researching all the enhanced basics, um, and there's you know three or four that have been created over the years. Um, that and the main thing I needed was proper looping structures because I don't didn't want to deal with go tos, and I found one. It's called Blank and Ship Basic, and that's the one I decided I'm, that I'm using. So I'm now learning to use that and kind of learning the differences between that and uh, starting to port things kind of section by section. Um, and the first thing I've noticed, I mean, it's just you, for, you forget how bad things used to be. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you forget. Um, Basic is, is built on AppleSoft. It's kind of an enhancement to AppleSoft Basic. And it still has some of its, its inherent problems, which is, for instance, variable names, uh, two letters. Only two letters are significant. <laughs> so yeah, I started at the beginning, I had, you know, my old version on the Atari, I had a variable called subpath X and another one called subpath Y. That's not going to fly <laughs> in the Apple II. <laughs> so two letter variable names. I don't know. just don't know how we, how we survive. That. I, yeah, I, it's interesting. It's someone who my first programming language was basic. Right on the Apple II. Well, it was actually on the TRS-80 and then the Apple II. And it, you know, having moved on from that, but you know, it, it, the learning path was really interesting. Learning basic when it was really restricted, you really had to figure out creative ways to do things with go tos and all of that, and mm-hmm. everything had line numbers, and you had to have that pain where you ran out of line numbers in some part, and you had to move things around, and um, and then having to graduate slowly from that to things that kind of compiled really slowly to, um, you know, uh, better and better languages as they appeared. Um, there's something about it. And I'm wondering if it's, it's a good thing that uh, kids today don't need to go through that, or maybe it's a bad thing. I mean, certainly I think it was a good thing that we had computers that you, if you just turn them on, you got a little line and you could actually type a line of code mm-hmm. and hit run. And, you don't really have that today. Um, and for a while, you actually, it was very difficult. It's a little easier today than it was, say, 10, 15 years ago. But I don't know. There was something about the fact that, you know, here's a computer, make it do things. You type commands and run, and then it does things. Whereas computers today are not not thought of in that way. And, and that's fine for most people, but where does it leave programmers? You know, how do you get new programmers out of that? I wonder, though, <clears throat> I mean, one of the things that those kinds of limitations, let's call them, um, forced us all to do was to be creative in particular ways. And I think that those were skills that uh, helped us 
in whatever followed on, be it, um, you know, hobbies or careers. And, you know, looking at what, what today's programmers are faced with, um, they have limitations. Uh, they just have different limitations. And the way that those limitations and the way that they deal with those limitations, um, they will learn from, and they will probably learn in ways that will benefit them in ways we just can't imagine with whatever comes, comes, comes next. Well, I only have 64 gigabytes of RAM. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 60, you're 60, you had 64 gigabytes. That's, <laughs> I, so, let yeah. me tell you. I think, yeah. I think my, my original Apple II had 64K of RAM. Okay. Oh, so you had 64K of RAM? Exactly, I know. Oh, I, you're, I, I've you, only been 32. You must know. have been rich. <laughs> <laughs> 1K yeah. on the Timex Sinclair. Come on. Yeah. Those, are, those are the days. But like I said, those were limitations that forced you to learn to do yes. things. Yes. Well, there were limitations, yeah. and there were, but there, there was also the freedoms of that, of that basic being there right. as like the, for, you know, the app that was like there and loaded when you, you, know, you started. Yep. And now we have the file system that's there loaded when we started, you know, which is very different. Yeah. Basic was was there and it was free, so people would have given it one star. <laughs> yeah, really, this programming language sucks. Would not use again. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's funny. Anyway, that's uh, what I've been doing. I'm that's I won't, I'm well using my wasting my time. What about you, Leo? I've been moving on moving on to more current technologies. I mentioned last week that I was in the process or planning on making some. A fairly major change to, to the AskLeo.com website in terms of the back-end technology. It's still WordPress, but I just switched the theme, which for, any, for, for a website of any size can be a, uh, a fairly significant chunk of work. I mean, the idea behind themes is that you, know, you can just change the look and feel of a site uh, at the click of a button, but of course, the reality is that that's that's not the case in any in any way, shape, or form. There's always things that have to happen. Anyway, that work happened on Saturday. Uh, it actually, you know, took me several hours to make happen, and it seems to have gone well. I'm actually pretty pleased with the results. It seems to be ever so slightly faster, uh, but certainly under the hood, it is uh, significantly cleaner and somewhat better organized and easier for me to maintain and, and fix issues as they come up. One of the things that um, I, I was fielding some questions from a reader on prior to the change was the problem of printing web pages. Now, I'm sure you guys have all experienced this, and I have no idea how your sites do. I mean, obviously, Kevin, yours is free printable, but you're downloading stuff that prints as opposed to printing mm -hmm. a web page. Right. Printing a web page in general is usually a very, very bad experience. Um, it, things never look reasonable or things rarely look reasonable. You end up with all the ads. Sometimes pieces of the page disappear off the paper. I mean, it's just, it, it can be a mess. And somebody was asking me about this because he was actually wanting to be able to print Ask Leo articles for his reference and, and save them in that form. And to be honest, the previous theme, it kind of sort of sucked. It just was not print friendly. One of the nice side effects of the work that I did over the weekend that I just spent a few minutes playing with uh, earlier today was its printability. And one of the things that surprises me about, about some websites, not all, but some, is that there are things that you as a website designer can do to make your website respond better when it's printed. Simple things like making ads disappear or making, you know, audio players disappear or even video players if, if that's if that's the thing to do to make those not appear and have the have the transcript or whatever appear in its place these are these are relatively simple things that you have to think about beforehand now to be fair to you know a lot of other website designers not everybody really cares about printing it's often an afterthought uh, we spend a lot more time worrying about how our sites look on mobile than we do how they look on paper. But I just thought it was interesting that, uh, you know, it is absolutely still a, a priority for some people. Some people absolutely do care. Certainly I have asked Leo readers that care. And hopefully part of the side effect of the work I did over the weekend will result in a, in a better printing experience. Have either of you guys spent much time playing with, with the printability of any of your websites? 
Not me, because uh, I probably should, but I've got the issue where I've got um, videos. I mean, my main thing on, on the site is a video. Right. Um, so printing doesn't have much of a point. I don't know why you'd print the description of the video. Which right. is you don't, you don't provide a transcript for your videos either. I, so I do, and I don't really do anything to allow people to print them nicely. Um, I mean, I suppose they're just text transcripts. So I suppose you, if you really wanted it, it'd be easier than printing is to copy and paste them into a, you know, document or something right. you could read. So I don't have a special CSS style for printing like anywhere. Like to right. That's how I've done it on, on some of my sites where I want people to be able to print um, just a little CSS. And then uh, I don't know the specifics of it, but if, you know, someone hits command P it will print up a, a nice version that has excluded the the ads and the whatever shouldn't you know be so yeah with with a little forethought and a little CSS it's easy to do but it's like you said one of those things you need to plan for you need to think about yeah yeah the, making, other, the other thing I think that people need to you know when they're making a website that they don't think of uh, many of us don't think of is accessibility. Simple things like using an, an alt tag to describe an image for people who cannot see them and things like that. And it's just little stuff like that that will set a, a, a website apart from, from the pack, I think. From I have to believe, past. too, that when it comes, I mean, we're all, you know, a lot of us content providers, we are all concerned about showing up in search results. And I have to believe that doing things like having alt tags in place for accessibility it also provides a bunch more information to the search engines that says, hey, this is what this image is about. This is what this page is about. This is why you should rank it higher over the other pages that kind of sort of this, you know. Right. So mm. anyway. Mm. Yeah. So, and, uh, well, there, actually, there's one more thing is the reader view, uh, which is available in it's available in Safari. It's available in Firefox, I, think, I believe. I think Edge, too, if I'm not mistaken. I think Edge. And now Chrome is, uh, you know, they promise or they've been talking about making it available. And supposedly, I think it's available in Chrome for Android in some form. Of course, the big thing is that ReaderView is not good for advertising. And so I can see why Google is like, oh, do we really need to implement this? Right. Um, so, you know, I've been trying to pay attention a little bit. I have some things, issues on my, my to-do list to make my pages look better in reader view uh, than they than they do right now. So it's interesting. If if I'm not mistaken, I do believe reader view is in edge, but what what gets weird is that edge itself is changing its technology to be chromium based, which right. makes me wonder if that's going to go away or if they're going to reverse engineer it into chromium or or just make it a feature ad for it. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how that how that play, plays out. My feeling is that it's not that Chromium doesn't have the capability to do it. It's just that Google really doesn't want to right, have right. You know, their browser do it. Uh, it, may, it may take a few million or a few hundred million off their bottom line just enabling that feature. <laughs> In other uh, words, pocket change for them, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. But it's tough. You know, re reader view is, is a tough thing because unlike printing, where you should be able to say, oh, I make these changes to CSS and this is how it should look and I can test it and see it looks good. Reader view is a little more mysterious because right. there is there are no tags and things you could definitely say, you know that okay if I do this and this this is what it look like in reader view. Um, it's it's tougher to design for, almost impossible. I wonder how many people actually use reader view though. I mean, you know, it's it's not something that's heavily promoted. Yeah, uh, and I just well, Apple I does yeah, on the on the Mac side. Apple does. Do they? Uh, yeah. Um, they talk about it a lot, and I think it's used a lot more by Mac users, obviously, because I mean, if the main browsers got it, whereas you know the PC world, Firefox, it's I think it's fairly new in Firefox. It's been around, I think, since 2010 or 2011 in Safari, and recently they added a feature where you could say, "I want this website to always show me reader view." So you could pick your favorite news site, turn that option on, and then any article you go to read will just show up in reader view. And you make do that when I. When I remember to use it, which is never, I'm delighted by it. Yeah, and it and but I, you know, I never remember to to use Reader View. And especially on you know mobile. I mean, I'm looking at my iPhone and I bring up an article on some site and I'm looking at it with my 
eyes that are getting older, I'm looking and I'm like, oh, I can't, oh man, that's going to be a pain to read. Oh wait, read review. I put on read review and then it's beautiful. I'm like, why didn't they do that in the first place? Like make the mobile version of your site actually readable, <laughs> you know, for most people. I don't know. I have a question for both of you. You mentioned uh, the Edge browser, Leo. Yes. Um, and I just saw earlier uh, a headline that said, uh, Microsoft's Edge for Mac browser now available uh, in preview. And yes. I don't know anything about Edge. I've never used it, but my gut was just to like to roll my eyes and think, here we are, Internet Explorer all over again. Why, why is there another browser? Why is it coming to Mac? Why should I care? I already have like six browsers on my machine. And that's plenty. Thank you. I don't know that on a Mac you do care. Um, I think Microsoft is just having to do it so that they can say it's there. Edge, at its root, Edge is actually not that bad a browser. In fact, I'd even say it's certainly better than Internet Explorer. The problem Edge has had for years is that it was released with the initial release of Windows 10 uh, with an incomplete feature set, which meant that on a lot of sites, Edge just wouldn't work, wouldn't give you what you needed to see. So a lot of people simply avoided Edge. And of course, Microsoft being Microsoft, they really tried hard to ram Edge down your throat. They mm -hmm. uh, made it the default browser. Uh, even if you had a different default browser, Edge would still be used in certain cases by the system. I mean, just you know, a whole number of, of, of bad uh, implementation decisions, I would say, along the way. Now, Edge has matured in, this, in the intervening, what, two or three years. So it's not a bad browser. It's just a matter of why do we need another browser, even on the PC? We definitely needed a replacement for Internet Explorer if they weren't going to continue maintaining that. Microsoft had to have something. But why Edge? I don't know. And now, especially given that they're changing the underlying technology to Chromium-based, uh, I'm not sure what the strategy turns out to be other than Yep, there's another Chromium-based browser. Woohoo! I have a theory, uh, at least on the why it's available for Mac or will be available for Mac. You know, Microsoft is so big into enterprise and business now. You know, that's the the kind of thing that's going on that consumers aren't noticing. Is Microsoft's huge there, and they've got tons of stuff that they're supporting on the business side, and they probably see it as well. We need to support Mac stuff, and um, we, when we come out with new apps, you know, web-based apps, we you could we have control over our own browsers, but we need to be able to go to these businesses who are saying, well, we have 10% of our companies, they're on Macs. You know, our creatives are on Macs, our writers are on Macs, whatever. And then they go and they say, oh, yeah, well, they won't be able to use so-and-so because it only works on the Edge browser, which is only on Windows. But now they you know, with a Mac version, they'd be able to support that. Whereas if they don't do a Mac version, then they have to actually make those apps work with Safari or Chrome or something on Mac. And they'd rather do that with their own browser um, than... Uh, That's actually a pretty reasonable theory. It wouldn't surprise me if it were something along those lines, yeah. Yeah. So moving on then, the first item that was actually recommended by... Randy, and then of course he didn't show up. Um, someone, let's see, Adobe, the headline is that Adobe tells users they can get sued for using old versions of Photoshop. Now this is an article in vice.com, came out I think a few days ago, I remember spreading it myself. And it's interesting for a couple of different reasons. Of course the, uh, the press is all about uh, oh my gosh, Adobe's evil, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, for basically telling users that uh, this software that you didn't buy from us, you only licensed from us, gives us the right to tell you that you have to stop using it or you face uh, legal action. The interesting part of it is that it might not be Adobe's fault, at least not directly. If you read through the article, it actually talks about the, the, the wording that Adobe uses says that you might be at risk of legal action by quote-unquote third parties. In other words, not you, not Adobe, but someone else. They're not saying it, but the theory is that there was legal action between Adobe and potentially a third party from whom they had licensed some software. Um, Vice is uh, calling out uh, apparently a... Uh, a uh, 
uh, a legal action with Dolby, of all things, where the thinking is that it's not Adobe that would come after you for using this old software. It might be the third party, i.e. Dolby. I don't think anybody's going to go after anybody uh, for, for using an old version of Photoshop. Um, this is their creative cloud subscription model. But uh, it's just interesting that that's how it's being spun, that they chose to use the legal card maybe to cover their behind uh, when it comes to legal actions. I mean, that's one of the very frustrating parts about a lot of these kinds of decisions is that they're done not for not for business reasons, not for user experience, not for technology, but because lawyers said so. Um, but it does remind us all that a subscription model is just that. It's a subscription model. Mm -hmm. Just like Netflix can take movies away from you at the end of a month that you can't see anymore, um, the subscription model you subscribe to for software, be it Adobe or Microsoft Office or any number of other things, Dropbox or any of the, any of the other services that we use, they have the right to change what they give you and you don't necessarily have the right to force them or continue to use stuff that you don't have licensed anymore. What do you guys think about it all? Well, you know, as, as an Adobe user, uh, using lots of their apps, I was interested in this and I was a little disappointed in the reporting on this because the reporting, nobody seemed to understand really. So you know, what's really going on. And so I don't feel I have a complete understanding with what's really going on. But this is what I've surmised from it is a lot of people are blowing out of proportion when they read the news because they think it affects them. And in fact, it could affect very few people. So it only affects the Creative Cloud suite. So if you have a purchased app from Adobe, like you are still using CS6, which was the last Creative Suite before Cloud, or you have one of their standalone apps, that you purchase at some point doesn't affect you. Um, so you have to have Creative Cloud. Uh, if you had Creative Cloud, like one of these old versions of the software, and you no longer do, then you already couldn't use those because your subscription has lapsed and you're, you're no longer able to use them. So it's only if you currently use Creative Cloud, and it's saying you can use the two most recent versions. So that would be like Photoshop 2019 and Photoshop 2018, or you know all the 2019, 2018 things. It's if you have an older one and for so if you have a creative cloud suite you are paying for the most recent version you can use it i mean you you can use photoshop 2019 if you have a subscription but if for some reason you were using photoshop 2017 instead of 2019 then this affects you and i'm not sure if photoshop's affected at all if this is dolby um it might more be things like animate and other uh other apps that right, have set, sound, and, app, yeah. yeah, After Effects, uh, you know that kind of thing. Premiere, audition, um, yeah. And so, the th so the thing is, you're choosing to use, even though you're paying for the most recent version, you're choosing to use one of the features of Creative Cloud to go back and use an older version instead of the most recent one. So that means probably very few people are doing it. Now, there is a reason to do it if you decide that, like you were using Premiere and you love 20, Premiere 2016 or something and you thought every version after that is trash for some reason because they changed something you didn't like, um, you might still be paying for you know, Premiere 2019 but using 2016 with your license. But I got to think that's a tiny number of people Right. Um, and your solution isn't, oh, I can't do it anymore. Your solution is, all right, well, I guess I didn't like how they changed the keyboard shortcut for this and that. Well, okay, well, now you're going to have to move forward. Just like if suddenly the operating system you were using no longer supported that version. You know, it's very similar to that. Right, but, but, I mean, and we've both experienced this, certainly on the operating system side, people definitely get tied to specific versions. And sometimes yeah. it's a matter of preference. They don't like the keystroke. But sometimes it's a matter for what they're doing. The thing that they're doing is no longer working in the most recent version or, or would take an inordinate amount of work to convert to the most recent right. version. Right. right. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that there are people out there that then would be affected by this. But right. I have not 
you know, doing the thing where you go into the forum and you read all the people complaining about stuff. I didn't see anybody that actually fell in that category. It was right. people that were stating things that weren't true or this is why I don't get cloud subscriptions. Well, so if you don't get cloud subscriptions, this doesn't affect you. And if you did get a cloud subscription, it probably wouldn't affect you still. Right. You're, you're using this as the wrong excuse. So uh, it's a lot of misinformation and probably probably it's Adobe probably hates it. I mean, if this is all legal based, then Adobe probably was told, well, we could say this and only this and nothing more. And that's it. Right. And there's like people that, at Adobe saying, oh, I wish I could explain to everybody, but they can't. Right. That's, that's, I'm, I'm almost positive that that's exactly what happened because the, the media, you know, Vice in this case and a couple of other news, news uh, sources, they're dealing with very, very limited information. And yeah. they're basically theorizing and they're presenting a lot of theorizing. As we are. <laughs> as, well, of course, but they're presenting it as if it were fact and or at least not making it clear that they're theorizing as much as they are. And a lot of people and they too are drawing the conclusion, you know, drawing conclusions that a lot of people are affected by this and oh my gosh, it's horrible and, and so forth. When in fact, as you say, um, the actual uh, number of people truly affected, probably very small. Mm. Yeah. I know that, I mean, like you, I'm a, I'm a Creative Cloud subscriber. I um, have been for a couple of years and uh, absolutely love the tools, but I stay current. It's the nature of what I do. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a leading edge kind of guy. So as yeah, soon too. as Photoshop updates, I get the latest one and I deal with the changes. It's just not yeah. that big. One of the things that is interesting is for those people that are impacted, the folks that are back using a 2017 or a 2016 version of Creative Cloud, um, they've actually got a harder jump to make to the most current version because they're getting like three or four versions worth of updates all at once. So it's going to hurt them more. Than, than had they just been riding the wave and taking the updates as they came. Yeah, and now also this triggers kind of a memory of stuff like this happening with first the GIF file format and also MP3s that somebody, owned, you know, the, it, it kind of at the beginning of the internet, you know, who cared? Oh, you, a few random geeks were, you know, using, you know, the internet to send GIF files or, compressed music and then after suddenly people started making money the patent holders for those things came forward right and I'm we're like hey copy serve for that yeah and then copy serve and, and uh, what is it Freuhofer, i think it was for mp3 somebody like that yeah so and and you, the, so then you had software it was like oh i have software that makes mp3s or, or plays mp3s and who can get sued for that could the software maker could you know there were certainly threats so we could sue every single user if you view a GIF online, you know, you could be liable, you know. But so in the end, nobody was, right? You know, it was all okay. The patents all expired or, you know, and a few people paid a few bucks. Uh, I think Apple paid maybe a few bucks to, you know, keep using those formats for yeah. a little bit. And on one hand, on one side, we have a better file format, PNG, that came out specifically because of this. Yeah. Um, and on the audio side, well, MP3s still seem to be, the format, even though there are better formats out there. Yeah, people still uh, use them. Although, actually, no, I think at this point, I mean, AAC has just really taken over um, most maybe on things the Mac, I see. Maybe on the Mac side, but I'm seeing MP3s everywhere, absolutely everywhere. This huh. podcast is not an AAC file. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We're using MP3. Yeah, right, right. If, 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 we were, if, if the world truly were just we would probably be uh, publishing in AUG. Right. Mm. Well, no, a AAC is fine, too. AAC is a completely open standard. It's all good and, and everything. Yeah. So either one of those two is fine. I think AUG is thought to be better quality, but then I think AAC has iterations, too. You know, the most recent with the most recent stuff is pretty, pretty good. Right. So, and certainly compresses better than a P3, as, as does AUG. And, right. Uh, right. Yeah. But MP3 has the widest support. Yeah, so. yeah, because somebody may want to listen to our podcast using some sort of old flash drive-based yep. MP3 Winamp. player from 1997. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> now so. compatible with Winamp. <laughs> <laughs> oh, speaking of music, you guys are going on and on about 
Adobe and Creative Cloud and stuff. And I, I don't use any of that stuff. And I was thinking, I think the last like time I seriously used an Adobe product was was PageMaker in college when I was in, the, in journalism. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, Photoshop for the win. I love Photoshop. Yeah, I've gotten to, to really love, I mean, I use all these different, um, you know, image editing apps because I yeah. do tutorials on, you know, I use Acorn. I love Acorn. I love Pixelmator. Um, just, I'm going to get into it affinity, I decided, but you know, I have started to get back into Photoshop because I have it as part of my creative cloud thing. And it's like, well, if that's like the, the one that, you know, is like the, the, the standard for, you know, high end image yeah, editing, yeah. why not use it? I have it and it launches in like a second. So the question I have so. is, is it the standard? Because I, so as we've discussed in some previous episodes, you know, I play around with photography. I watch some photography videos. I do, you know, all that kind of stuff. Lightroom. Lightroom actually well, has a lot of photographers using it on a daily basis. To that's a, a different type of thing, though. That, I mean, Lightroom is an image. At first, it's a photo management and kind of uh, adjustment software you know yes but apparently it's like very powerful adjustments that duplicate a lot of the kinds of things we do with photoshop i hear people complaining about lightroom all the time because uh, uh, you know apple used to have a competitor aperture and they discontinued it and whenever uh you know somebody's talking about this kind of thing on mac forums uh, people complain that even the old discontinued version of aperture is better than the current version of lightroom uh-huh. Um, and and Lightroom doesn't have this and this, and it hasn't been updated properly, and it, all this stuff. And um, and yeah, but I mean, Photoshop and Lightroom. I mean, if you're just doing photography and you want to manage your photos and do process your photos, Lightroom's made for that. Photoshop is made for if you want to take an image, open it up, design something, build something. You know, it's it's more the standard image, which is what I want to do. I'm working with like web based you know, images and things like that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that in Lightroom. I'm not going right. to build something in Lightroom. Right. I'm going to do it in, uh, in Photoshop. I thought all the geeks used the GIMP. GIMP. Ah, it's such no. a... Well, I've they, tried so many yeah. times to use GIMP, and I just... They say it does everything Photoshop does, but oh That's my a, Lord, I can't figure it out. <laughs> okay, if Leo can't figure it out, it's not figure outable. <laughs> it, it, it is pretty yeah, intense in terms of all the... I mean, it has all these features and stuff, but... But it's all done differently. I mean, you have to, you have to think different. <laughs> you really do. Well, even Photoshop, there's stuff like, uh, you know... Um, I was just trying to draw, I was ha- trying to have dotted, animated dotted lines, kind of, I, I was trying to use all the Adobe products to do it, and I couldn't do it, but Keynote did it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it just was like, you know, okay. I was well, I'll to- admit, I do use the Snagit uh, image editor. Um, the Snagit is the, uh, the screen capture utility. Mm-hmm. And I definitely use that to do things like quickly add call outs and draw lines and circles mm-hmm. around things and so forth, just because it's built for that. That's exactly what it does. And it does it really well. And if that's all I want to do, I'm not going to fire up Photoshop for that. Speaking of music. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I tried. <laughs> yeah, I can deal, derail the, the, the best uh, transition. Written yeah. um, super interesting article at uh, Rolling Stone, uh, kind of a, a follow-up about fake artists on Spotify. And this is something that, that they had written about months ago, and, and, and there's kind of an, an addendum to it. Um, so it had been explained previously that Spotify is filled with, with fake musicians, um, um, people with names like uh, Samuel Linden and Anna Oglika and, 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 and Karen Borg, and just like people you've never heard of, but um, they have hundreds of songs with millions and millions of plays and lots of monthly listeners. And the theory is that these are created um, for Spotify so that Spotify doesn't have to pay as much royalties. Um, not only that they don't have to pay for the royalties for, for these, these fakey songs, but also it brings down the, the overall uh, royalty rate they have to pay to the legitimate, the quote unquote, legitimate music publishers. Hmm. Um, and and uh, most of these songs are uh, like 
in the relaxation category it's not like pop stuff but it's it's uh you know stuff like uh you know waterfalls with with uh you know tinkling wind chimes and and uh, relaxation uh sort of music where you know you do really care if you're listening to to a uh, to a enya or to a you know anna oblica you probably don't you just want to you know do your meditation and relax or whatever um so the the new news on it is that um there was controversy over Spotify doing it, but now it seems like Sony and maybe some of the other big name publishers are doing the same thing. Um, for instance, they talked about an album of uh, rain and thunder sounds created by a, 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 a new, you know, fake artist. And the album is um, lots and lots of one minute tracks because when you play something on Spotify, uh, you get paid if it if the user plays it for longer than 30 seconds. So why make a, a track that's much <laughs> longer than 30 seconds? Let's just get them to listen to more tracks. So there's just like hundreds and hundreds of interchangeable tracks of rain and thunder and you know lightning sounds or lightning. I don't know what lightning sounds like. Rain and thunder sounds uh, and that sort of thing. And then they they stick it up there. And when someone wants to you know, uh, have a, have a, a white noise mood or or uh, whatever. They they can f- play this, and then you know, uh, Sony or whatever publisher will make more money because the tracks are small and they're not paying a quote unquote you know paying out to a, a legitimate musician. So I don't know. I just thought it was super I, interesting. I how- definitely see that, and I've seen it in more categories than just that. Like I've seen bands that do covers. Right. So there, I guess there's, you know, the royalties didn't get split. There's performance and then there's publishing you right. know, royalties. But bands will do covers to songs knowing that, you know, people will search for these songs and just play one that comes up. Um, and, and the way I've discovered it is sometimes when the song name isn't obvious, mm-hmm. like it's one of those songs where the, the name is obscure or it's not even a lyric in the song, but there's a repeated lyric and everybody thinks the song is named that. So then a cover artist will actually do the song and name it the thing you think it is, maybe the original titles in parentheses. And right. they end up getting tons of plays, even though they're nobody. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, anybody could really put, you could put together an album, go through the process to get something into one of these systems. And it, it's fairly easy to do. And then all of a sudden you're getting, you're getting royalties from mm-hmm. plays and they're legitimate. People are actually listening to you. You're actually not getting the publishing rights, you know, the, the publishing royalties from it you're just getting the performance royalties but it's kind of a, a bit of a trick and there's a you know there's an it's also in the news today for um there's a, a publisher that is upset about albums that are like uh, the song uh, over the rainbow was one of the main ones some songs oh, yeah, like that. that yeah yeah where they're where they're claiming that there are some illegitimate versions of albums that are there uh and the royalties are being funneled off. Of course, the the legal claim is that uh, Apple and Google and Spotify and and Facebook and YouTube and all know that these you know they're they're willingly committing copyright fraud, which I don't believe for a second. Because um, I don't think why would they care who the royalties go to? Um, they would want them to go to the proper place and not be you know in mm-hmm. legal trouble for it. So, but yeah, it's it's, it's- a. It's interesting this this entire co- concept of of cover versions of popular song I mean it's been around forever uh in the sense that it's not unusual to be watching a television show and hear a very popular maybe even somewhat current song mm-hmm. and then realize that the voice is similar but just mm-hmm. not quite the same and what they've done is they've actually found someone who sounds a lot like the original artist to record a cover. And they're saving money, uh, presumably for the production of that show, right. uh, and, and just you know, putting it out that way. And I think, I want to say that I've recently ran into this just listening to a stream online where I was listening to something, and I, I honestly don't, I don't even remember the genre anymore, but I remember thinking partway through that, oh, these aren't originals. These are covers. It's, you know, basically one of the, one of the streaming stations on, I don't know if it was Amazon or Spotify or Pandora or somebody uh, was, was basically populated with covers of original songs 
that yeah. presumably somebody was making more money off of because they didn't have to pay the original artist. You know, I hadn't thought of this before. Many times I have said, you know, Alexa, play rainy days and Mondays or whatever I want to hear. And she plays a version, but it's not like the canonical version. You know, I mean, when I, when I ask for rainy days and Mondays, I want freaking carpenters, you know, right. and it, <laughs> it comes up with, you know, some artists I have never heard of. And, and I always assumed, okay, well, this is some modern popular artist who did a remake, but what if it's not? What if it's intentionally a, a, a fake artist or, or just someone who's just in it to, you know, manage to basically gaming the, the search engine, the, the, the SEO of the, the, the Alexa. Yeah. Right, right. It's, it's interesting because I'm, I'm also tempted to, to be a little bit wary of using the word fake because these are legitimate things to do. Recording a cover is certainly something that's supported by the industry. Playing a cover is certainly a, you know, the, something that is, is not, you hear on, on radio stations as well. Um, and but yet I, there's this new concept being thrown into the mix called essentially, like you said, search engine optimization. It's, it's audio engine optimization that, that um, uh, you know, is causing some of these to be selected when in fact what you're looking for is the friggin' carpenters. And I'll bet you if you asked Alexa for uh, you know, rainy days and Mondays by the friggin' carpenters. Um, you you get somebody else whose band happens to be called the friggin' carpenters. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, a lot of these songs, according to this this uh, this article, are come out of one particular production studio, and I bet there's there's twenty of these companies around the world uh, called Epidemic Sound. It's a Swedish production <laughs> music house, and you know, I I think if if you have a production music house that is releasing uh, songs under 20 or 30 or 50 different group names, that's a fake artist by any definition. Yeah. They're not calling themselves epidemic sound or, you know, whatever it, it it's uh, they're trying to, to, uh, you know, it, 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 fill the- it is and it isn't right. I mean, it's kind of like, Hey, I'm, I'm a guy that runs businesses on the web and I have, like multiple names. Some think of me as fax zero. Mm-hmm. Some think of me as free printables. They're completely unrelated. Does that make you a fake artist? I don't Absolutely. think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. I mean, I'll give you the benefit of a doubt, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I understand it's all about intent and there's no way to capture intent. Well, I, I think this is where the machine learning prediction AI engines and all come into play. You know, that when we ask for rainy days and Mondays, it gives us that, so, you know, the, the one that, you know, it should be giving us um, as the first suggestion. And that the, the you know, the, maybe there's a couple legitimate covers and a live version that, you know, come in after that. Um, and then the one that somebody trying to make a buck is further down the list. and eventually doesn't even appear because nobody's actually making money off of those because they're they're properly not shown, you know, at the right place. And actually, you know, all of the um, I don't I guess Spotify does this. I know Apple Music does it. You know, where you can actually search by lyric in addition mm-hmm. to song. So the idea of searching for that lyric that's not the song title and you know getting the real the right song is actually you know a problem that existed in the past. It doesn't exist so much now because I would assume that you know, the right song would come up now that the but, AI would figure it out for you that this is probably the song that you want. Uh, yeah, you know, I, there's a lot of hope for AI, but, but this concept of the right song, even well, that is ambiguous. No, right? I mean, cause well, I, I the mean, Beatles well, they, covered, covered like blues songs from 10 years before they were around, which one is the right song? Well, but there's certain songs that are like, if you're looking for twist and shout, you probably it's going to come up with the Beatles song first, right? Maybe, maybe not. It depends. That's like I said, that's where AI, I think really has the opportunity to do things right. Because if they know that I listened to blues of the fifties, they right. should pick the one from the fifties over the Beatles. On the other hand, if I'm listening to the Beatles all the time, great. Um, but, but if, if, and if it comes up with either one, you know, so twist and shout does on Apple music comes up with the Beatles first and, and, the uh, the original second, but those are the two that should be first and second, no doubt. One recorded by somebody I've never heard of should not appear in the top ten, and none none. Well, actually, there might be one at number five. But you know what? 
you know, and it's and uh, Daryl Hall and John Oates song comes out at number four because it's a lyric in "You Make My Dreams." So, kind of interesting. Yeah. Wow, oh, there's a, there's a band called that too. So the idea is not that it's going to get the perfect right song, but the idea that these, you know, the, these ones that are not worthy of our listening shouldn't appear near the top or anywhere and eventually the market takes care of itself because people stop recording these they don't make any money off of them so the the vast majority of people are not going to ask for a specific version right they're not yeah they're just going to play the first one that appears so it's that's why it's up to right and and i i don't know how that problem gets solved unless somebody else adds a value judgment Right, and there, well, there are tons because it could, it, you know, the they could take the charts, right? Billboard music charts, other music charts. They could take uh, what other people are listening to. If the third choice is getting picked more than the first choice, um, then it should be a signal that whoa, there's something going on here. Gotta what everybody else is listening to is just whatever happened to play first. That's true. Yeah, that's but how the popular the websites become the most popular websites. Well, but it's so if the pattern should be so if I was doing software, if the pattern should be that ninety percent of the people click the first one, eight percent click the second one, two percent click the third one. That's the pattern I should see. If it's you know seventy five, ten, and then twenty uh, percent, uh, then something's wrong. The third one is more significant than sh- it should be, and you know that needs to be taken into account. If if more it's people so, are clicking that third one than two percent, uh, but 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 so that's what. How do you how about. do you how do you click with voice recognition? Right. Oh, but it doesn't matter what you click; it's what you select. What you decided. Uh, so you, you you don't you worry about something those. and it plays something. Right. right. Well, you don't worry about those. That's not part of the data set. Mm. Speaking or, of AI, I mean, these should things should be smart enough to to understand the the context of the the users age and maybe geography if i ask for rainy days and mondays yeah i you know being a 40 something year old guy i probably want the the carpenter's version if you're a, a millennial maybe you want the the version by cracker uh, you know or uh which apparently is a group that you can listen to um <laughs> or or you know maybe if you are an east coast person then there's some east coast you know uh, uh, yeah, that's, had a cover something like that they, that's why they, i say yeah. Our hope is in AI, but there's a there's actually a more current version, a more current song. I don't even say that; it's the wrong way to look at it. There's another instance of this: uh, the sound of silence. Okay, yeah. there are currently three very distinct, yet very popular and very legitimate versions of that song. Right? There's the original sure. uh, by by Simon and Garfunkel. There's um, one mostly a cappella by um oh gosh the names the names um uh, it it's I, I can't think of it right now uh, but it's an individual who normally does like this incredibly heavy metal has a really strong rough voice he did it on the conan show a while back and it's just gone viral on on the youtube and then there's the one done by pentatonics true acapella mm-hmm. all very popular which one do you want and how do you tell it which one you want? Well, I mean, you can go and say, buy somebody. I yeah. just found an instance of a fail, uh, Big Yellow Taxi. The number two is Joni Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> you see? Counting, counting Crows apparently would be the one that you would hear if I would just ask for that song. Are, uh, that but, is incorrect. <laughs> this, yeah. Disturbed is the name of the artist I was trying to come up with, is yeah. the, the middle gun. But, so, I, you know, you can say, you know, the name of the song, buy so-and-so. Sure. Um, when you re- request and you could do all sorts of things. I've asked for, you know, I can't remember the name of an album. I've said the latest album by whatever. And, you know, Siri gets it right for Apple music. And I assume. Oh yeah. I did that not that right. long ago by asking um, Alexa for the latest album by Taylor Swift. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, Hey, we're all a little curious, right? So <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> I think, uh, I think that's a good place to leave it. <laughs> we could all go and and try things out and report our results for Big Yellow Taxi on right. and rainy days and Mondays. Yep, I agree. So speaking of trying things out, last thing, I, I think that this week before the next show, I'm going to try to watch uh, Wandering Earth. Is anyone with me? I'll do it. 
I'll give it a shot. I'll do All it right. with you. All right, let's do that. And then we'll oh, and, and I forgot to mention, I will also be trying uh, fake meat for dinner. Mm. Oh, yes, that's right. Fake meat. It's what's for dinner. <laughs> it's what's for dinner, <laughs> literally. Which, uh, which brand of meat did you pick up? Um, it's not impossible. It's the other one that's really popular. Beyond? Stores. Beyond, yeah. It's I actually had a Beyond Burger at a restaurant that did not previously serve any of – they had their own house blend, you know, vegetarian burger. And I sat down, and they had a new menu, and they had both the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger on wow. the menu. And I was cool. like, whoa. Check that yeah, out. Fact, my, my wife pointed it out to me. We were talking about it at some point. We were at, at Whole Foods this afternoon, and uh, they had um, Beyond uh, sausages, actually sausage of some sort. Oh, they're 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 yummy. They are. Uh, so did you? Yeah. So I went for the regular ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, there's an Italian hot one as well that I mm-hmm. really wanted to to try. But uh, I also, my wife was interested in trying it too, and that would have been a non-starter. So cool. Yeah, I liked I liked my Beyond Burger the other night, and cool. uh, yeah, good stuff. All righty, I think yeah. that pretty much wraps it up for us this week. Yeah, the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh sixty nine. <laughs> you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the teh podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will see you here again next week. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you.